Now, last week in chapter 11, Stacy masterfully broke down the passage, and part of that was about staffs, union and favor, and, and how the Lord, through Zechariah, gave them a sign. He broke those staffs, and in an incredible feat of strength, our senior pastor demonstrated how that worked and how that looked, and you know, I'm a pretty competitive person, uh, <laughs> and not one to be shown up, so you know, I thought I had to go big or go home today, and so you know what I'm going to do with this? Absolutely nothing, so let's go. <laughs> let's dig into the text. Couldn't help myself. I want to start with some important notes. Uh, y'all just heard the passage read. Thank you, Rob. Some important notes for understanding this passage in Zechariah as we continue our our walk through the text. And uh, the first thing jumps off right at the very beginning. It says, the oracle of the word of of the Lord, the oracle of the word of the Lord. This is God speaking. And then it goes immediately into thus declares the word of the Lord or thus declares the Lord. This is God speaking. And the focus of what God is saying is on what he is going to do. Not so much everything that they're going to do, but the work of God. The focus is on what He's going to do. In verse 2, He says, I am about to make. Verse 3, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. Verse 4, I will strike. Verse 4, I will keep. Verse 4, when I strike. Verse 6, I will make. Verse 7, the Lord will give salvation. Verse 8, the Lord will protect. Verse 9, the Lord will seek. Verse 10, I will pour out, says the Lord. Over and over and over, it is absolutely clear in this text that what we're talking about and what we're seeing is the work of God, what the Lord Himself will do. And the focus is specifically on what God will do among Israel. What God will do among Israel, the people of God. We see it in verse 1, the oracle of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord oracle concerning Israel. And you say, well, when is this going to happen? We read all the stuff that God's going to do among Israel. So when? Well, the focus is specifically on what God will do among Israel on the day of the Lord. Now, there's a little bit of a shift um, in, in our timing here. In fact, in, in verse, uh, chapter 14, 1, it's actually said the focus is it's, it's on the day of the Lord. And in chapters four, 12 through 14, we see repeatedly this, this, this phrase, on that day, on that day, on that day, is repeatedly given. In fact, in, in chapters 12 through 14, it's given six, uh, 16 times. On that day, on that day, on that day, 16 times. Seven times in chapter 12 alone. On that day. Now chapters 9 through 11 pointed to the first coming of Christ. That's what Pastor Stacy was talking about, that Christ was coming. We, we, we saw that. But chapters 12 through 14 shift and focus on not the first coming of Christ, but towards His second coming, the great day of the Lord. So this is what God is telling us that He will do concerning Israel in the last days or on the day of the Lord. And now you might say, I doubt it in here, but it, it might be said, If this is about Israel and the Jewish people, then what does it have to do with me? If that's what it's all about, then what does this have to do with me? What do I need to get out of this? Um, Or is this more just about learning about them? 
What is it? So I, I want to I deal, before we actually start breaking down the text a little bit more, I want to deal with some introductory questions for our passage. A few introductory questions. And, and number one, and we're not going to answer these exhaustively. This is very skim because we don't have time today. But what is God's plan for Israel slash the, the Jewish people? What is God's plan for Israel or the, the Jewish people? I think it's an important question for the church and maybe even especially in our day today and uh, all of the chaos. I guess the question comes: has God re- rejected them, as many will say? Is God just done with them? They rejected his son, so he's rejecting them. Is that what it is? They rejected the Messiah, so God has rejected them. Um, I would point out that just in, our, in the New Testament church and in the New Testament, all of the apostles were Jews. Almost all of the New Testament writers, with the possible exception of Luke, were, were Jews. And almost all of the early believers in the beginning of the church were Jews. So not all Jews rejected Jesus there. Yes, the New Testament does speak of a, of a veil or a partial hardening, as you would read in Romans 11. If you really want to read a little bit more on the uh, on that subject, Romans 11 is, is a really good place to go, but we also see in those, passage, those passages and ours today that it's not ultimate or final. God does still have a plan for the Jewish people, for the people He has chosen. Yes, there's a veil and a partial hardening, but it said it's for a time, but it's not ultimate or final. God still has a plan for the Jewish people today, for Israel. And how does that plan relate to the church today? How does that plan relate to the church? It's, it, it, it might be pretty important, and this again is introductory, but I think we need to understand it as we move into the text. Now, there are many different positions that have been espoused over the past two years about how the church and Israel relate and, and how that should come about. And again, we are not going to do handle that at any kind of length today. I just want to make a couple of, of, of points. And like many other aspects of theology, if not most aspects of theology, there's kind of ditches you can fall in. And you can go one too far one way or too far the other, and many do that. Some overemphasize Israel and make, too, make it too much of the point and almost put it on a different plane in terms of a relationship with God. Um, the modern secular state of Israel is the people of God. They, they might say they basically have you know, a, their own separate Jewish path to salvation, Everything that modern Israel does is pretty much right and should not be criticized. And I just want to back up and say that wasn't even true in biblical times under the theocracy of Israel. Okay, So uh, I don't think that is it. Now others go completely the opposite direction and they can completely write off Israel or the Jewish people as having any continued place in the plan of God. Yes, they were, but that has now been transferred to the church. Some would say that uh, the Jews should be rejected because they've rejected Christ. Even that they crucified Him and emphasized their culpability over that of the Romans or even us as we stand here today. And that has gone very far in some ranks and has contributed to massive persecution and anti-Semitism over the centuries. And listen, we're seeing the hatred towards the Jews spread like wildfire today. In a drastic way. Some would just say that Israel has simply been replaced by the church as the people of God. It's called replacement theology. The, you had Israel, now you have the church. And the, that mantle has almost been passed like a torch to the church as 
as the people of God. All the promises of God in both the Old and New Testaments concerning Israel now belong to the church and only apply to ethnic Israel symbolically as a representative of the people of God today or the church. All that's fine, but let me just say this. The biblical truth is more nuanced than either of those stitches. It's more nuanced than that, and neither look like what the church in the New Testament is called to be. So how should, number three there, how should we view and relate to Israel today as the church? How should we? Number one, I think honestly, honestly, if the nation of Israel does something wrong, we should say that was wrong. Honestly, individual Jews and the secular state today are sinners just like everyone else. Honestly, but also humbly, there, there has likely never been a people more persecuted and mistreated historically than the Jews. And yes, Jewish leadership and large crowds called for the crucifixion of Jesus, but what exactly do you think you would have done? And what exactly do you think you have done? And intentionally, no one, Jew or Gentile, is saved apart from faith in Christ. No one, we see that clearly in Scripture, is saved apart from faith in Christ. So Paul in Romans 10.1 says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. For they've got a zeal for God, but it does not accord with knowledge. I just, I pray, I desire more than anything their salvation. He also says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, or the Gentile. It's a pattern of Paul's ministry. Everywhere he went, where's the first place he would go? He'd go preach the gospel in the synagogue first. It didn't always go well. Most of the time it didn't. And so it would also go to the Gentiles intentionally with the gospel and yes the promises ultimately belong that the promises ultimately belong to Israel a fully apply to the church yes i absolutely believe that all the promises belong to Israel they are ours because if we have been as, as paul said grafted in to the people of god we've been grafted in and all the promises are ours by faith but the picture of the, of the New Testament church is of Jews and Gentiles united together in Christ. In fact, there's so much attention given to that. Read the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, even Ephesians chapter 3, about the coming together of Jews and Gentiles, and that's a beautiful thing. So we should, we should be intentional there with the gospel, honestly, humbly, intentionally toward our, the Jewish people today. So let's dig into our passage here. Kind of how, how does the passage break down? What do we see? Well, the first thing we see is that a, a massive and united war against Israel. A massive and united war against Israel. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will, be, will also be against Judah. On that day, just hang on, you're going to hear that phrase over and over and again over. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all peoples, and all who lift it shall surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather 
against it. All the nations of the earth are going to gather against Israel, thus says the Lord. Begin to see what will happen on that day. Verse 1 lets us know that God is speaking and what's He going to do. Verse 2 talks about a siege of Jerusalem and also of Judah. Judah, that surrounding area in which Jerusalem is part of. Verse 3, on that day all the nations of the earth will gather against it. Jerusalem and Judah, Israel there. Picture a massive, picture a massive international army encircled about Israel to come against it. It says all the nations of the earth. That doesn't mean every little pocket of people everywhere, but this massive international army gathered against Israel, the people of God on that day. Not to say, I'm not one to say this is talking about such and such, and this is going on in our day, and we see this, so this is what, not at all. I don't have a clue when this, when this is going to happen. If it's going to happen 500,000 years from now, whenever, I don't know, okay? Nobody really knows. But you could certainly read this passage quite a bit differently today than you might have just 100 years ago when there was no modern state of Israel. You might read it a little bit different today. And you might think that we are way too sophisticated in our modern era to think there could be such a massive hatred and movement for the annihilation of this small country and minority people called Israel. Anyone else been pretty shocked by what you've seen recently? Rapid worldwide protests and even calls for the genocide of this people that are taking place right now? I'm not saying that this is the beginning of the fulfillment of Zechariah 12 through 14. I have no idea when that's coming, but I am saying that we can definitely see more easily how we can get there. How we can get there. So in chapter 12, we, we see that on that day, there's going to be a massive and united war against Israel. Number two, there's going to be a massive and decisive military deliverance by God. A massive people are going to come against Israel, and there's going to be a massive and decisive military deliverance by God. Verse 3 told us that this will be a much heavier lift than the warring nations anticipated. It says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a heavy stone, and those who try to lift it are going to hurt themselves. It's not going to be quite what they expected it to be. Look at what God's going to do on that day as we continue to read in the text. He says, I will, I will strike, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. What's going to happen? Well, understand, horses, horses represent military strength in the ancient world. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Horses are representative of that military might and that military strength. And God's saying, none of that's going to be enough. None of that's going to be, is going to work. You see a picture of mass confusion. I'm going, to, I'm going to strike the horses with panic and the riders with madness. You see a picture of, of, of mass confusion and chaos rendering the army ineffective and maybe even suicidal, like the victory that God gave to Gideon. You remember, they, they had 300 people circled around ten, tens of thousands of soldiers, and they broke pots and shouted. And all of a sudden, this mass confusion broke out, and the people started killing each other. They did the work for 
the people of God. God gave an incredible deliverance. And you see something that kind of sounds at least a little bit, a little bit like that. It goes on to say that the clans of Judah, verse 5, the clans of Judah, think the areas outside of Israel, outside a little bit broader out than just Jerusalem. The clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. The people are beginning to recognize God is with us. God is delivering us. He goes on to say in verse 6, And on that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. So what is is God going to do? He brings in the clans of of, of Judah here. Again, the the country folk, okay? Um, he, He brings them into it. And he says, this is I, even even among them. I'm going to bring my deliverance. God is going to give exceptional power to this people, so they, they are like torches or or fire pots. Think of something they would carry around the coals in to, to ignite a fire. It says that among the sheaves, among a very combustible combustible thing. God says I'm going to use them, and they're going to devour the people coming against them. They're going to set the nations coming against them in ablaze. And they will remain in Israel, in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation. It goes on to say in verse 7, The Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. First, the deliverance is going to come to the clans out there, the country folk. Not just in Jerusalem, but throughout the land, God is going to deliver Israel. And not just the big important people of Jerusalem, also the the clans, the small and less significant country folk out there. It's like Billings and Broadview, right? Broadview's getting delivered first, and then Billings. God goes on to say in verse 8, on that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants, inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. God is going to strengthen and empower them in that day, and it is going to be something to behold. Now, remember, David is the mightiest warrior of Israel, right? He's the the warrior king who, who led in countless battles. And brought incredible victory to the people of God in the Old Testament. God's saying, listen, the feeblest among them is going to be like David. The great king. And they will all have the power of Christ going before them. Talking about incredible victory in the power of God. And in verse 9, he kind of he wraps it up. He kind of sums it up. He says, and on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. God says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to wipe them out in that day. God will. Ultimately, it's clear that God is going to be the deliverer of Israel. They're going to know it. They're going to see it. Nobody's going to question it. It's going to be obvious. God has delivered Israel. They are not going to question it. The nations are going to amass and come against them. And it will look, in the beginning, it will look like they're going to be toast. I mean, they're... They don't have hope. They're going to get wiped out. 
But God is going to bring a massive and decisive military deliverance. And you say, wow, that's going to be awesome. Man, that's going to be incredible when that happens. Yeah, it's going to be great, but that is not what is most incredible in our passage. We see a massive war against Israel. We see a deliverance by God that's going to be stunning, miraculous. Incredible, yes, but that's not the primary point here. That's actually small in comparison to what God's going to do next. Finally, we see in three, or in point number three there, a massive and gracious spiritual deliverance by God. A massive and gracious spiritual deliverance. We've already seen the military deliverance, but now we see a spiritual deliverance starting in verse 10. God says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that, listen to this, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over them, over him as one weeps bitterly over a firstborn. There's a picture here, and the picture is that of a massive spiritual awakening. We've already seen a military deliverance, and now we're seeing a, a, a massive spiritual awakening. God says He's going to pour out on them a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Notice how that's going to happen. It's going to happen when they look on me, God says, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn. All of a sudden, God's going to deliver them. And you see Christ front and center in this. You see Christ front and center in this. This deliverance is going to come. They're going to look and see we are delivered by our, the Messiah. We're delivered by Christ militarily. They're going to look on Him whom they have pierced. And they're going to celebrate. It's not what it says. They're going to look on Him whom they're pierced and they're going to say, uh-oh. It says they're going to mourn. They're going to mourn. And it, we spend the next several verses talking about the mourning. They're going to grieve. They're going to, they're going to be in sorrow when they see what they've done. They're going to mourn. There will be a great... They will, they're going to be awakened to the reality that their deliverer is Jesus. It's Him whom they've pierced. And when they realize it, they're going to grieve. They're going to mourn. And they're going to see that their deliverer is the one who they rejected. And there's going to be a great sorrow for that sin. And this sorrow, or this mourning, is going to be real. And it's going to be deep. And it's going to be widespread among the Jews in Israel. It's going to be wide. And we say, why do you say that? Why is it going to be so wide and deep and widespread? Well, instead of just parties and Parades celebrating a great military victory. They're going to be broken. They're going to be broken idea that, that by the idea that they've been rejecting their deliverer. It goes on in verses 11 through 14. The next several verses, as I told you, to describe just how widespread that mourning is going to be and how widespread that sorrow. It's going to touch all the kinds of people by themselves, it says. Really interesting how this is worded. All the different kinds of people by themselves. The house of David, 
by themselves, and their wives by themselves, the house of Nathan by themselves, and their wives by themselves, Levi by themselves, and their wives by themselves. Verse 12, each family by itself, and their wives by themselves. The picture is not just some, some group event. Salvation is and has always been an individual working of God. It's not just, okay, everybody's going to get together, mass salvation here. There's going to be widespread, widespread mourning and grief and brokenness because of their sin. And all these individual people who God has made aware of that reality of their sin before Him are going to be awakened also to His grace. It's going to be mourning. Salvation is an individual work of God. And all these people by themselves, across all walks of life among the people of Israel, there will be a brokenness for the sinful rejection of Christ. Even the great and supernatural military victory that Christ has just got is no consolation for the weight of what it means to turn your back on Jesus. I mean, they were just delivered, and it's an incredible deliverance, but that's no consolation because they realize we've got a much bigger problem. We've rejected our Messiah. We have turned our back on Jesus. So the people are absolutely mourning over their sin. But do you know what happens? Do you know what happens when they truly mourn over their sin against God? I love this. What happens when they truly mourn over their sin against God? The same thing that happens when you truly mourn over your sin against God. The same thing. Look at what comes next. Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanliness. On that day, there's going to be a fountain opened. And it's going to do what? It's going to cleanse them of their sin and their uncleanness. What happens? Salvation happens. What happens when somebody is truly broken, truly broken down because of their sin? They're ready for the gospel and ready for the good news. Salvation happens. Forgiveness happens as we read in the text. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, not just because you're upset about something, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Listen to this. For godly grief or godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Godly sorrow produces Repentance that leads to salvation without regret, Paul says. There is a kind of sorrow and mourning that isn't helpful. Absolutely, there is. But when you, when you are broken over your sin and you see the gravity of what that sin means before a holy God, and you know that you're not okay, and you know that you can't undo what you've done, You aren't looking anymore within yourself to make it right because you know you've already blown that. But on that day, there is a fountain open for the house of David 
to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Individual people from all walks of life throughout Israel are going to grieve and mourn over their sin. And in that moment, God is going to open their eyes to incredible grace. They're going to look on the one whom they have pierced and they're going to grieve for it. But all of a sudden, they're going to see that that work of him being pierced was for their salvation. They're going to cling to Jesus. So what are the takeaways for us? few things. One, even the chaos of the world is ultimately under the control of God. You see God sovereignly moving here. I will. I'm going to. I will. I will. It's just over and over and over. We're going to continue to see it in the text. Even the most hopeless situation, God remains in control and He can deliver. You know when the nation's coming against there, they think, oh goodness, we have no hope. This is it. And God delivers. And even more so, when they see their sin before Him, they say, oh no, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among the people of unclean lips. I've blown it, I've messed up. And God is going to deliver. Number two, God always fulfills His promises. There is no doubt that when the armies are amassing, many if not most all the people will think that God's abandoned them. The armies are coming up, oh, we've been left, we've been abandoned, we're on our own here. There's no doubt God has abandoned them, or maybe that He was never there. But God seldom works in the time and in the way we want Him to. We always want him to be early. He's never early. By the way, he's never late. In the perfect time, usually when it's crystal clear that we can't do it, he acts and he always fulfills his promises. And his promises are good for the people of God. Number three, everyone is saved the same way. Everyone is is saved the same way. How are the people of Israel ultimately saved in this passage? God didn't just say, poof, now you all know your Messiah. It didn't happen that way. No, their eyes were open to the reality of their sin against Jesus. It's where it started. They see Jesus for who He is and their eyes are open to this reality of Woe is me. Uh Uh-oh. In other words, I'm in trouble. I've sinned against Him. And seeing that reality, they're absolutely broken. And when they are truly broken over their sin, the grace of Christ appears as the most beautiful and irresistible gift they can ever embrace. It's a beautiful thing. I think a lot of times today, we want to skip over the sin and brokenness part. And we just want a Jesus who is a happiness giver. We really kind of want to skip right past that. Oh, I'm a sinner before God. Oh, I'm broken. Oh, I got a problem. We want to just kind of move past that and say, well, I, I, I need some of this help in this area. I need some help in this area. I need some peace. I need those. And I just want Jesus for that. That is not how salvation comes. It's not. And then, when we aren't happy, we're mad at God for not being what we expected Him to be for us. 
Please listen today. Please listen. Nobody anywhere, anytime is ever saved with first, without first realizing the, magnif- the magnitude of their sin and owning it. You're owning it. Y'all know Billy Graham, famous man. You always, do you know that you're a sinner? That's what he used to always say. Do you know that you're a sinner? It's a good question. Do you know? Do you own it? Do you own it? I'm not okay. I am not right. I have blown it. I have rejected Jesus so many times in so many different ways. I do what I want to do. I put myself on the throne and not Him. Radically depraved. There is no hope for me. I'm lost. Do you see your sin and do you own it? Have you come to Christ? Have you come to Christ? And if so, then why? Just to be happier and to feel better about yourself? Those things may come, by the way. But they're not why you need Jesus. They're not. We need Jesus because we are lost in our sin and we have no hope apart from His grace and apart from what He did for us on that cross. We're in a desperate situation. Do you know Jesus? Have you come to Him? Not just to get a little boost in your life, but have you come to Him realizing that, listen, I can say the Jews rejected Jesus, the Jews crucified Jesus, the Jews did all that. You don't see yourself in that. Jesus was on that cross because of your sin and because of my sin. Y'all know the old song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Were you there? And the answer is yes, you were there. And you weren't there, one of the ones mourning, oh, I can't believe that happened. No, we were the ones doing it. It's our sin that caused Christ to lay down His life for us. Do you realize the magnitude of your sin? Do you own it? Y'all know, I think I've told you, I grew up on a farm in Texas and Spent many of my days as a, as a young man throughout high school and all on a tractor out in the field, plowing the fields. And there was one thing that we would do as we were getting ready to make the soil ready every year. It was called a breaking plow. <laughs> and it was really interesting. It was kind of a sweet plow, a big sweet plow that would, would go a good 16, 18 inches below the ground. And it would dig deep in that soil and it would get up underneath it and dig deep and it would pull it up and it would turn it over uh, upside down on the ground and it was really, it was slow going, it was hard, it was slow hard plowing and it would bog the tractor down, you had to duel it up and everything just to be able to do it because it was, it was hard work. But you took that soil that was, that, was, that was fallow, that was hard and that wouldn't receive the seed and it wouldn't absorb the moisture and you got underneath it, and it got tore up, and it got broke up. And then that soil that wasn't ready was ready. And it would receive the, the irrigation, the moisture, and it would receive the seeds, and it would grow and produce fruit. Are you broken for your sin before God? Have you ever come to a place and you realize, listen, I'm not okay. I am not good. I have utterly blown this. I have no hope. I have no chance. I need 
a Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for that incredible grace. I embrace it with everything I have. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for deliverance. God, I thank you for reading about a story of you bringing incredible deliverance and knowing it's in your word, it's in your truth, it's going to happen. Lord, but I thank you so much more for that spiritual deliverance that you bring among Israel, Lord. And I thank you, that spiritual deliverance that you bring among us, even in this room, Lord. And I pray for all of us in here, God, not just to try to come to you because we just want easier, we want better, we want this, that, and another, but Lord, to realize that we need a Savior and you are our Savior and embrace you fully and completely for what you've done for us and who you are. God, move, we pray amongst us in Jesus' name, amen.